Welcome back, everybody. If there's, if there's anyone in the, in the atrium area, we're getting started now. Hope you uh, all enjoyed your lunch and, and the previous panels. Uh, I found them very stimulating and illuminating, and I trust it, that you all did too. Maybe that explains why you've come back for, for more, either that or, or, or the beverages after this panel. Um, here we're going to talk about the current state of, uh, of U.S. politics. I'm just going to set the table briefly uh, and then turn it over to my colleagues up here to get into some specifics, and then we'll have a Q&A. Uh, so each person here will speak for about five to seven minutes. Um, let me just say that, remind people that we're going to talk about U.S. Po politics, U.S. trade politics, that it's the Congress that has authority under the Constitution to levy taxes on, on, on imported goods, that levy tariffs, to have control over trade policy. And basically, that was the case until about the first third of the 20th century. Uh, the president never got involved, or in a real substantive way, got involved with, 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 with tariff policy. That changed. Um, there were a few statutes in the early 20th century, but really it changed in 1934 with the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act, where the Congress recognized that it was cumbersome and difficult for them to pass trade legislation. Uh, there was a lot of log rolling. It took up a lot of time. And so uh, a little agreement was made between the, uh, the Congress and the President, uh, where Congress would set out some parameters. You can go out and negotiate trade uh, reductions, trade liberalization, tariff liberalization. That was pretty much limited to that. Uh, and bring it back to Congress for, for an up or down vote. And since then, the executive branch has received more delegations of congressional authority, uh, various statutes. We have statutes. You know, as members of Congress were voting in favor of trade liberalization, they also wanted to be assured that they could respond in an expeditious way to certain conditions, uh, a surge of imports for safeguard law, dumping, subsidization, uh, national security threats. So a variety of laws were, were, were passed over the years. Uh, they were generally not abused. Uh, some pres presidents engaged in some protectionism here and there, uh, but it was not. It was more the exception uh, than the rule. And you know, the, the assumption was the president is much more pro-trade. The president has an international perspective, a national perspective, a, a broader perspective than members of, of Congress would. And it turns out that that Congress didn't anticipate somebody like like Donald Trump. Um, the, the, there's been a weaponization, I think, of some of these, these laws, in particular the popular ones we've been talking about lately, Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962. The President has used that, as you're all aware, to uh, levy national security-based tariffs on steel and aluminum from most countries. That's a law that gives the President a lot of latitude to define a national security threat and to come up with a plan to mitigate that threat. And as we've seen, um, the, the specter of getting hit with tariffs or the possibility of avoiding those tariffs has motivated a lot of trade negotiations, uh, a lot of um, agreements with other countries. Uh, it's been used to try to compel the Europeans into behaving a certain way, to contribute more to NATO. Um, so Congress hasn't really reacted to this yet. They, they, there's been discussion. Congress said, well, maybe the president has gone a little bit too far here. Uh, but there have been some efforts to maybe introduce legislation that would rein in some of these powers. But, but those efforts have, are kind of late in coming. Um, they've been introduced by Republican senators who are retiring. Uh, 
Uh, so they're not worried so much about the politics. And, you know, the politics is something that they really do need to worry about. Uh, it turns out that there are a lot of Americans who are receptive um, to this idea of having a, a more muscular U.S. policy abroad, uh, who are, are sort of tired of the United States submitting to the same rules as everybody else, uh, who have heard of the rise of China and Chinese cheating and usurpation of U.S. sovereignty at the WTO, who want a president who's going to act outside the rules and to puff out his chest and, and, and to break the furniture. And so a lot of members, particularly from Republican districts, have, have not wanted to cross swords with the president over this. Um, so that's kind of where we are. I'd like to know um, how we, what, to what we, we attribute this. Um, there's a strain of nationalism, a strain of populism. The, the president has delivered a very, in a demagogic way, a very populist message that has resonated. So I think we're going to talk a little bit about what's behind those U.S. politics, the populism, uh, talk about some of the mechanics behind it. And, uh, and I hope, just to conclude before I turn it over, um, Alan Wolf said a couple of things uh, earlier that I want to pick up on. Uh, he, he said, uh, he made reference to Arthur Dunkel's point that the WTO was the product of U.S. unilateralism, wanting to avoid or contain or restrain U.S. unilateralism gave rise to the WTO. And I'm wondering whether the pendulum has swung back and whether failed multilateralism or the perceptions of a failed WTO is what is energizing U U.S. unilateralism. Is it going to be used as an excuse for unilateralism? So maybe we can talk about that a little bit. One other uh, point that, that Alan made that I also want to touch on, he said that trade ministers are deciduous to suggest that there's no permanence to policy and policy changes. So I'd, I'd note that U.S. presidents are also deciduous, uh, at least when I left last week, that was the case. I don't know if any laws have been changed. Um, so I wonder whether the panel would be able to address the question of will Trump's approach to trade uh, persist after he's gone? How long after he's gone? Um, will it be emulated? What can be done about it? So I'm going to start by turning. Should we use that order that we discussed or that we did before? Sure. Okay, we're going to go Simon, uh, Inu, Jim, and Scott. And I'm going to turn it over to you now, Simon. Thank you, Dan. Uh, so Inu and I have been working on a, a paper about populism. It's part of a law review uh, symposium. And so we kind of have, I think, a two-part presentation here. So I'm going to talk about the idea that there has been a populist revolt by the American voters. And then she will talk about the, the trade policies of a particular American who some may refer to as a revolting populist, President Trump. We don't, we don't use that term, but some people do. Um, populism has, has been an important topic in the trade policy world in recent years. Um, these certain political votes have been characterized as a populist-inspired rejection of globalization. The populists have spoken, and some argue that we ignore them at our peril. You know, we need to adjust the rules to take into account their demands and their concerns, or else the whole system is at risk. And the basic questions I want to address here are, do the so-called populist voters in the, in the United States really worry about trade? And do we need to accommodate them? 
to t so to take one example, I have seen suggestions that we need to impose social dumping tariffs on imports made with low labor standards in order to assuage the critics and bring a sense of fairness to the trading system. So let me, let me now say that we gave the same presentation on Wednesday at the public forum, and I felt a little guilty because I referred to this, um, uh, this proposal, and the person who, who made it uh, you know, wasn't around, and I didn't want to talk about him behind his back. But he's actually here today. Uh, Greg Schaefer's back there, and uh, he has an article called Retooling Trade Agreements for Social Inclusion. And so let's just, we just want to reserve some time for Greg to, uh, to respond uh, to what I'm saying here. I'm not going into detail on social dumping tariffs, but Greg, Greg can... Uh, Greg can take us through it um, in the Q&A. So, so the spoiler here, uh, I'll just give away my conclusion. I'm not convinced that U.S. voters are anti-trade. Um, I, I don't think we need to court them with big changes to trade policy because I don't think they have big objections to it. Now, there are certainly a few committed activists who object to trade agreement rules on intellectual property and on uh, ISDS, and I'm sympathetic to, to some of their criticisms. Um, but I just I don't see the mass of voters um, being unhappy with trade itself. So, so that's the conclusion. Let me walk you through my reasoning. So. Let me start by saying a little bit about what populism is, because there are a lot of opinions out there, a lot of different definitions, but uh, I'm going to use one from the economic historian Barry Eichengreen, who has a book called The Populist Temptation. And he defines populism as a political movement with anti-elite, authoritarian, and nativist tendencies. And he says, the populist movements on the left emphasize the anti-elite element, and the populist movements on the right emphasize hostility towards foreigners and minorities. And I think that, that's a good place to start with all this. So, so right now in the United States, we have this, on the right, alleged populist as president. And I think it's fair to say that Donald Trump is, is nativist, uh, a bit authoritarian, and he, he certainly pretends to be anti-elite. Uh, over on the left, we have people like Bernie Sanders, and I would say he actually has a little bit of nativist in him, although he's more polite about it. And I would say he also pretends to be anti-elite. And so you, you'll see my cynicism there when I say they pretend to be anti-elite, because I'm skeptical of the, the whole notion that we have populist leaders who are, are anti-elite in their economic policy. So my friend Rob House, law professor at NYU, and people like Danny Roderick argue, I, I think, that... On the left, there's a good populism, where the elites are making bad policy that hurts ordinary people, and they should be opposed. And so those who oppose the current conventional wisdom on economics are good anti-elite populist. But I'm just not convinced that their arguments are really anti-elite in any meaningful sense. And I think, for the most part, what we're seeing are policy disagreements among different elites. So to take the example of fiscal policy, um, are trillion-dollar budget deficits good Keynesianism, or are they just reckless waste of money? Is a balanced budget sensible fiscal policy, or is it harsh austerity? Uh, as I see it, you have some elites favoring one, some favoring the other. Which approach is anti-elite? Who are the populists? And if we can't figure that out, does anti-elite populism mean anything? A few years ago, our, some of our libertarian uh, friends were, were talking about the idea of a libertarian po populism. It just seems to me that, for the most part, populism is a way of marketing your policy preferences as something popular and therefore desirable, but it doesn't have a lot of substance in terms of economic policy. Now, in contrast to that, I think nativism is very real and something to be concerned about. Uh, but on economics, I'm just not sure who the populists are and which them we're supposed to be accommodating. Now, the good news is, on trade, I don't think we have to. Uh, I, the idea of a populist revolt against open trade in the United States is mostly a myth. Um, I don't think Trump's trade policies are very important to his supporters. I think they prefer cheap products to trade wars. Now, I think they do care about immigration, uh, and they care about uh, football players kneeling during the national anthem, if you've heard of that one, uh, but those are different issues. So I, I don't think Trump could get cheers if he, at a, one of his rallies, said we should take in more Syrian refugees. His supporters are not going to go for that. 
But I think he could. If he wanted to go out there and, and rail against tariffs, I think he could easily say tariffs are special interest favors for the rich. And I think his, uh, his supporters would cheer him on that. So um, I, I do think I, I, his supporters may be anti-Mexico in some vague and general sense. Um, but I think they're pretty happy uh, with trade with Mexico and, and with China um, because of the, the products they can buy. So to me, populism is more style than substance. Um, it's when some member of the elite uh, with strong personality inspires support among the masses with, with a message that is anti-something. Um, the substance is not irrelevant to this. There are certain issues that tend to work well, like being anti-foreigner or anti-corporate. But as much as anything, it, the message is mostly, I'm against whoever's in charge now. Put me in charge instead. So I'm not worried about populism on trade generally. I think a population vote on trade is kind of a myth. And so Jennifer Hillman earlier talked about polling on this. And I, I think that the polls show that voters support trade in about the same proportion they always have. The interesting switch has been now that Trump uh, is against trade, Republican voters are, are less likely to, to support trade, whereas Democrats are more likely to support it because Trump is against trade. And that suggests to me their views were not very strongly held uh, to begin with. So. Um, now, while I don't worry about the American voters, I do worry about Donald Trump because he's not a myth. He's very, re very real, and he is anti-trade and anti-trade inst institutions to a, a great extent. But where, where I object is I don't think that adopting his trade policies or expressing concern for how liberalized trade affects his supporters will win any elections. And I don't think that uh, social dumping tariffs uh, will satisfy many people. And I, I'm happy to hear from Greg uh, rebutting that later. So. Um, so with that, I'm going to segue over into to President Trump's trade policies and turn to Inu, who will look at the results of Trump's latest trade negotiating efforts, uh, mostly focusing on the NAFTA. And uh, she can tell us uh, how worried we should be about the direction this is going. Thanks, Simon. Uh, so my remarks, as Simon said, will address the populist backlash uh, in U.S. trade policy and what that means in practice. Uh, as Simon has noted, populism has largely been used as somewhat of a veneer uh, to pursue nationalistic or protectionist policies by the United States, uh, which is largely a response to two core beliefs uh, that I think the U.S. Uh, really believes in. The first is that the United States has been taken advantage of by other countries. And the second is that the rules-based system is stacked against the United States. Now, if you hold these beliefs, uh, the first belief leads to a very aggressive uh, protectionist trade policy, which seeks to find some sort of rebalancing of trade relationships, but in favor of the United States. The second belief leads to a general skepticism for multilateralism. Uh, and this is where US power is believed to be diluted. Uh, and a preference towards unilateral actions and bilateral trade deals with the United States has far more leverage. So one way the Trump administration has attempted uh, to remedy this perceived unbalance uh, is to negotiate bilateral deals. And the two recent ones were the Korea-US trade agreement and then the NAFTA, which just recently broke earlier this week. And we've been furiously reading every night since it broke. Uh, and there's four key areas that I want to point out to you uh, that are interesting as a way to highlight what the administration's trade policy priorities are. Now, I could go on forever about things that are in the NAFTA. Um, but despite the fact that there's 34 chapters in there that are all very interesting, there are four very fascinating things that I picked out that I think you will also find quite unique. So the first, rules of origin for autos. Uh, these were strengthened across the board generally in terms of rules of origin. We saw it for textiles, for chemicals, and also for autos. But autos became sort of a sticking point in the talks, uh, and there was a, a race to the finish to really come up with an agreement here. 
Currently, NAFTA had required 62.5% regional value content uh, for duty-free treatment of autos. And the new agreement adjusts this to 75% for passenger vehicles and light trucks to be phased in over a period of three years. Uh, the um, automatic increase is going to be at 66%. And for heavy trucks, it's going to be slightly different. Now, the interesting thing about this is that it's just going to increase uh, the value content and also then be a barrier uh, to a lot of imports, uh, intermediate imports that go in to the auto supply chain. But in addition to that, there are two other notable things in the auto rules of origin I want to point out. The first is this Buy North America provision uh, that requires vehicle producers to source 70% of their steel and aluminum from North America that goes into the automobiles that they make. The second one uh, was a labor value content requirement, which states that vehicle producers must show that their production for passenger vehicles is made by workers making at least $16 an hour. So these proposals are certainly aimed at benefiting the United States over Canadian and Mexican auto producers, uh, but also focus on sort of reducing the foreign components coming in from Asia in the supply chain. And the higher regional value content threshold uh, is certainly going to be disruptive uh, to the current auto supply chains. And the minimum wage requirement is 100% directed at Mexico because Canada and the United States are already above that. So to the extent that this is populist, I would say it can be seen as an attempt to really boost the US industrial base. Uh, and that's a policy that I think the administration takes quite seriously. Now, ultimately, the proposal could backfire. Uh, we might see companies that find it easier just to pay the 2.5% MFN rate. Uh, to comply, then to comply with the new rules, or to increase use of automation uh, so we wouldn't be hiring more workers, or just shift production to lower wage regions. And this is definitely possible. The second aspect of NAFTA I want to bring to your attention is investor state dispute settlements. Now, USTR Lighthizer made pretty abundantly clear that he does not like ISDS at all. He called it risk insurance for big business. Uh, and this opposition is generally in line with the administration's distrust of international courts ruling on, on the United States uh, domestic laws. And so it kind of comports with this idea that the administration is anti-elitist, if you want to believe that's what it is. So ISDS in the new NAFTA has been significantly scaled back. Uh, there's no general recourse to dispute settlement uh, if, through this chapter anymore. Legacy investments are covered, but for a period of about three years, uh, where they're subject to consent to arbitration. And for Mexico, there is limited coverage uh, for government contracts, for oil and gas, as well as strict requirements for domestic exhaustion, uh, about 30 months. So while the administration first framed its opposition to ISDS uh, in very populist terms, uh, suggesting that ISDS uh, was a handout to big business, I think if you look at the text of the new agreement, you can see that you know, giving special handouts to some industries uh, is somehow consistent with their overall approaches, how they're trying to sell it. Well, this is not true. Uh, it's not at all. And so I wouldn't take this as an anti-elitist uh, position. And I also wouldn't take this as a sign that the US will anytime soon want to engage in another type of proposal on ISDS, such as an investment court system uh, or the multilateral investment court. I don't think that there's any room for that uh, based on what we've seen so far. The third issue I want to bring to your attention is the sunset clause. This was one of the original poison pills uh, put forward early on in the negotiations. Uh, and the rationale behind the sunset clause was that things change over time. You sign a trade agreement, and many years later, the economy changes. There are other adjustments that have to be made. So why not just have a renegotiation at some point in time? So it should naturally sunset. 
Uh, the new agreement includes a provision that allows NAFTA to expire after 16 years with a review at six years. So if an agreement to continue is not decided in year six, there's a negotiation every single year for the next 10 years uh, to see whether or not they can come to a conclusion. If they don't, it would expire. Now, I agree that the review of agreements themselves is not a problem. Uh, in fact, it's a very good way to update agreements over time. But I question whether we need some sort of provision like this in a trade agreement in the first place. Didn't we just renegotiate course? Didn't we just renegotiate NAFTA without a sunset clause in there to begin with? So what's the purpose of having this in there at all? Uh, and second, what's the metric by which we decide whether the trade agreement has been beneficial to the partners in deciding to continue it or not? So let's say you have someone in office who thinks that the trade deficit is what matters uh, for deciding whether a trade agreement is good. Well, they could use that as a metric. And so I can see in the way that this is set up uh, that there's a potential for abuse of this provision over time, particularly because the review is in the hands of the executive branch of government. And the last point I want to bring up with NAFTA was Chapter 20. And the reason I bring this up is because I think the three countries missed a very big opportunity to revise state-to-state -state dispute settlement uh, in the, the new NAFTA, leaving it as is. Now, I ask, what's the point of renegotiating a bad deal if you can't enforce the provisions of your new good deal? And there are issues, uh, as many of you all probably know, uh, that of the NAFTA Chapter 20 cases that have been brought in the past, only three have gone on to panel. Uh, and since late 2000, with the Mexico Sugar case, panels have been blocked, uh, usually because there was no roster, uh, insufficient roster of panelists. Uh, that was not fixed in the negotiations. We had many templates that we could have used to fix this, as in the TPP, um, as in CETA, and in GIPA, uh, but none of those were taken on. So I think that there's definitely a problem here that will limit the effectiveness of the new deal. So where do we go from here? What do we learn from the NAFTA negotiations for the future of US trade politics and where it's going uh, next? So I would say in looking at the new NAFTA, I would say that the administration's so-called populist agenda is just that, it's so-called. This is not a populist trade agenda. Uh, at the end of the day, what we see in the new NAFTA is a lot of carryover from the TPP with a few interesting tweaks in between. I would say pay attention to the outliers and that's where we need to look to see what the administration's goals are. Now, this is not a revolutionary takeover uh, and much still remains the same, so there's that at least that we have. But second, when we look at the negotiations and the issues that they focused on, they've really been limited at boosting the U.S. industrial base. And that seems to be consistent across the board and a lot of things the administration has really honed in on. And I think that's what we can expect in future negotiations. Um, and so that's the EU maybe next, uh, the U.K., uh, and then also the Philippines potentially and many others on that list in Japan as well. And finally, the one thing I would say to take away is the NAFTA negotiations have revealed something I think is, is very important but it's been missed in many of the conversations that have come forward this week. It's how willing the United States is to risk the established rules that it has itself created uh, and the friendship of its closest allies in these negotiations uh, just to get what it wants. So I would say the one thing we really need to take away is that we should expect uh, a lot less leadership from the United States in multilateral initiatives, um, a lot less good faith negotiation in some of the negotiations that do come forward, and the U.S. will further isolate itself if it continues to do this uh, to embed more <coughs> asymmetry in the system overall. Thank you.
Yes, I am. <laughs> Born ready, right? We have been asked to uh, address the current state of U.S. trade politics. In doing so, I think it important to offer some perspective. In my view, uh, the global struggle is not a struggle between civilizations. It is a struggle within civilizations between those who favor open societies and those who favor closed societies. The open society is the free society in which people are free to make their own decisions about how they choose to live. The closed society is a society in which their decisions are made for them by someone else. This includes the human freedom to engage in trade, whether freely or otherwise. This struggle between open and closed societies uh, takes different forms in different countries everywhere in the world. Different countries provide their own settings culturally and institutionally and historically in which str this struggle occurs. What we are discussing today is the struggle between advocates of open and closed societies in the United States of America. The current state of U.S. trade politics is merely one manifestation of that struggle. In the United States now, we are in the grips of a president who favors closed societies. Uh, he favors um, denying to people their right to choose how they wish to live. And he favors the strong arm of government in telling people how they should live. In trade, he's simply telling traders and firms how they should choose to trade. This is what we call managed trade, mercantilism, protectionism. This is what we call the opposite of free trade. There has been a struggle between those who favor freer trade and those who do not in America since the beginning of our republic. But now the struggle for free trade is caught up in the continuing struggle for freedom in a country that is supposed to stand above all for freedom, not just for Americans, but for everyone. And that's why we're having this debate. To get to the particulars about what we might anticipate in the days ahead, we must descend into the dire depths of partisan politics in the United States. First of all, 
I'll talk about my own party, the Democrats. The Democrats were the party of free trade from the days of Franklin Roosevelt and Cordell Hull up to and through the days of Bill Clinton and Al Gore, but no longer. There are so few Democrats for free trade that the television stations in America insist when I appear on telling their viewers in the script below that I am a former Republican member of Congress. They simply can't believe I'm a Democrat. That's how few of us there are on the Democratic side. Uh, this is perhaps important to say to my friends in Geneva who are hoping that the midterm elections may uh, produce a more optimistic result for those of us who favor the multilateral trading system. No, that won't happen. Uh, the Democrats are is in, firmly in favor of closing the borders to trade and the opportunities that come from the competition from trade and the gains from trade, as are the Republicans. As for the Republicans, there are no longer any Republicans. If what you mean by Republican is someone who favors limited government, uh, freer trade, and fiscal responsibility. Those people either do not exist anymore, or they are hiding beneath the cloak of little echoes of Donald Trump in the Congress. Why is this so? Especially when, as we've already been told, the vast majority of Americans are still for trade. In our politics, we have yielded to unlimited and often undisclosed spending on uh, politics as what the Supreme Court of the United States sees mistakenly as the exercise of free speech. We have yielded to a vast uh, rigging of our elections through what we call gerrymandering um, in the rotten boroughs of our congressional districts. We have created a situation in which only those farthest to the left can survive a Democratic primary, and only those farthest to the right can survive a Republican primary. And when they do, they are both vulnerable only to challenges from the far left and the far right, respectively. So it is not only that the center is not holding in the Congress of the United States, and especially in the House of Representatives, it is that the center no longer exists there. There's a broad center of the American electorate that supports a more open 
trading system as part of a more open society, but they are largely disenfranchised in terms of congressional elections. Why is this so? It's because, as I set out in my new book, in my view, Americans are in grip with the fear of change. This is how the struggle between open and closed societies is gripping our particular country. It is not affecting all our people. Many of our people are doing well, but it is affecting millions of them, and these millions happen to be in critical places in our political uh, map. 80,000 people in three states elected Donald Trump president, and they shifted their votes he would not be president. I do think it's important for everyone in the world to understand he only got 46% of the vote. 54% of the American people did not vote for him. It is only because of our antiquated electoral college system that he is president, and those 80,000 people made it happen. In these swing states, there are people who have lost trust in the American institutions, in American elites, in the system, because they have not seen the system serve them as it should. They're right about that but they're now being sold the wrong remedy. They're being told that foreigners are to blame. In trade, they're being told that foreign products are to blame, foreign goods and services and foreign competition. It's always easier to blame a foreigner this is true in the United States and in every other part of the world. That's what's happening now. And in our politics, we are seeing these emotions really come forward to the point where it's difficult to add any reason to the debate. The Cato and at other places, all too few, um, some Americans still try to share the facts with the American people. We do so as it relates to wins and losses in WTO dispute settlement. Uh, we do so fundamentally as to the benefits of trade. Uh, we do so especially as to the vast benefits of an open society in providing more opportunities for more human freedom. But uh, we are losing that debate now in our country. Therefore, we must redouble our efforts. In trade and in all the technicalities that we've talked about today, um, we see this worked out on a daily 
basis. But fundamentally, it is about a question that each of us everywhere must answer. Uh, am I willing to take the risk of freedom and trade? Am I willing to compete? Or am I instead bound on hiding from freedom or allowing someone else to prevent me from having freedom because I can't bear the uncertainty that freedom would bring? To me, that's the larger debate, and our trade debate is but a part of it. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Jim. Hi, everybody. Um, great to see you. Um, I want to thank Kato for inviting me. This is a lot of fun. Um, I'm going to talk about the U.S. trade policy as it's reflected in the uh, jump-starting of trade wars that the United States has initiated, much to the shock of mo many of us. Um, and I'm going to argue that the, the, those trade wars are not sustainable <laughs> from a political point of view, from an economic point of view, and that sooner or later um, the United States is going to have to come to the negotiating table uh, and try to work, work things out, as our uh, panel before um, discussed. Um, I would say, given the nature of the negative effects of these tariffs, which we'll talk about, um, that uh, um, the best thing for other WTO members is to just be patient and to continue to apply the pressure of their own tariffs uh, against the United States. Uh, and sooner or later, they will come to the table. Um, my sense is that U.S. voters will not uh, accept the effects of these tariffs, uh, certainly in the medium term. Um, I'm a dispute settlement lawyer. I've, I've done this since 1995 when Jennifer Hillman was kind enough to hire me uh, at USTR. Um, and one of the dirty, dark secrets of dispute settlement is when you're explaining to your clients how great the system is, is you get to the final step. And that is, they say, if you really win and the other guys don't, don't change their measures, then you're going to, uh, then, you, then you get to retaliate against them. And the client will say, well, what's, what's that involved? And if you were really honest, you'd say, well, that involves sticking out your foot and pulling out a gun and shooting yourself in the foot. That's the remedy you get. Um, we tended not to emphasize that too much in our, in our pitches. Um, but that really is the reality. Uh, one of the weaknesses of the system is that the ultimate remedy to force members to do something involves harming your own consumers and your own businesses. So the United States didn't wait for a dispute to get to that point. They just jumped right into it and started shooting their feet, their, their, their feet right off the bat. Um, the effect of the U.S. unilateral tariffs against China and against a number of other countries uh, has been to deny the U.S. consumers the best prices and the best products at the best prices. They've disrupted uh, supply chains. Uh, they've raised prices from higher price uh, substitutes that have to be used. And I think more pernicious than that, it's created a dirty political process of exemptions. Uh, Jim was telling me at the break that there's something like 10,000 lobbyists running around Washington right now trying to, trying to get exemptions for U.S. companies so they're, so they're not subject to these tariffs, so they can continue to buy the best products at the best prices and continue, if they're a downstream producer, to be competitive 
in the world market. Um, in dispute settlement, it's not the exercise of an actual imposition of the uh, of uh, tariffs in retaliation that is powerful. It's the threat of the use of these tariffs. So again, um, the U.S. has sort of shot their wad, uh, not, not threatening to impose tariffs, but actually going ahead and doing it. Um, I'd just like to give you a few examples, concrete examples of, of some of these negative effects. Um, the 25% um, steel tariffs on imports from various countries, they've increased uh, significantly the cost of steel. Uh, the, steel's, the price of steel in the United States has doubled in the last six months. Um, Ford and General Motors' cost of production for autos in the United States has increased by $1 billion each. Each of them paying $1 billion more than they were uh, before the tariffs for steel. Steel-using industries, and this is the, the, the irrational nature of these tariffs, is that steel-using industries employ 80 times more people than actual steel producers. So to put that in concrete numbers, Bureau of Labor Statistics estimates that there were 415,000 jobs in, in companies that produce steel, and many of them are in the three states that Jim was talking about with 80,000 voters, uh, while there's 4.6 million workers in, in industry uh, who are using the metals and are being negatively affected. There's reports, um, one example, a, a company uh, called NLMK, it's a producer of steel sheet, and you produce steel sheet. Uh, those of you who've worked on it in steel and dumping cases, no, you have to heat up the slab and then you, so you, roll, it, you roll it through. Um, What's happened to this company that's got 1,200 employees, their costs have gone up by $100 million for the raw product. And the New York Times interviewed a number of these workers, and they're all worried about their jobs um, because they realize that it's not sustainable to, to, to continue to be competitive in a world market for sheet steel with those increased prices. Um, Hitachi has a big operation in the United States. They've got 4,000 employees. They produce motors and... Um, they, they produce automotive parts, and they import from China um, uh, starter motors and generators. Now, that's the lowest price, and it's because they have their own independent or own affiliated Hitachi operation in China. Not, it's not a state-owned enterprise. It has no connection with the Chinese government other than the fact that it has Chinese workers. Um, the, the imposition of those tariffs uh, on, on these Chinese products uh, again, is irrational for them, and Hitachi has said they're going to move their operations out of the United States uh, if they have to pay these tariffs. Um, the, I think the USITC reported that there were 5,400 comments on the tariffs being uh, proposed to be imp in, uh, imposed. Uh, there were 5,400 um, basically petitions by U.S. companies to, to be excluded from these tariffs. Um, that's an enormous, enormous number, and it shows really uh, the irrationality of, uh, of the imposition of these tariffs. Um, sooner or later, uh, it's going to impose real pain and real negative impact on the economic conditions in the United States. Now, what can, what can I'd like to focus now, um, what can WTO members do? <laughs> well, those of you who have been negatively impacted, in, in, including Canada and Mexico, uh, the U.S. is now NAFTA 2 partners, um, 
they're, they're still having steel aluminum tariffs imposed on them. So they've naturally retaliated. Uh, and they, like many other um, uh, countries uh, who have been negatively affected by these U.S. tariffs, have, uh, have pushed back and done exactly the right thing uh, and imposed reciprocal tariffs. And they've been smart about doing that because they've, they've tried to focus the tariffs uh, uh, on products where there are, there are available substitutes out there. Um, China's imposed a number of duties on, uh, uh, duties on U.S. soybeans. Well, if you've ever been to Brazil and Argentina, you know they make a lot of soybeans down there. So uh, the Chinese don't have to worry about losing the U.S. soybeans. They just simply buy it from somewhere else. Uh, and what's happened to the soybean price since that's happened uh, is it's dropped by $2 a bushel, which is very, very significant. And so the Trump re administration's reaction to that is, well, we're going to throw $12 billion at the U.S. ag producers who are, who are negatively affected by this. So what's happening is, <laughs> is there's massive uh, purchases by the government that they can't even find warehouses for in the United States. Uh, again, this is not sustainable. And by the way, the $12 billion is, a, is an actionable subsidy which could be challenged in dispute settlement. Uh, on top of everything else. Um, many of the U.S. trading partners have been very smart and targeted the, um, uh, the, the, their own retaliatory tariffs against the U.S. in politically sensitive districts. Mr. Trump calls this interfering with the U.S. elections and interfering with the U.S. political system to do this. Uh, I can assure you the U.S. does the same thing when they retaliate, uh, as do all, all members. Uh, it's, for, for example, they focus on Kentucky bur bourbon in, uh, in Kentucky for Mr. McConnell, who's the, the, the leader in the Senate. Cranberries and Harley-Davidson's were, were, were gone after in Paul Ryan's uh, district. He's Speaker of the House. And Mr. Grassley in Iowa has been hit with uh, pork and, uh, and soybeans uh, uh, additional um, tariffs. It's an interesting statistic that 8.1% of the counties uh, where Trump won have been uh, negatively affected by the tariffs, and only only 3.2 percent of the counties that, that uh, Hillary Clinton won um, were negatively affected. So clearly, there's a there's an intelligent imposition of tariffs uh, that's that's taking place, and and I think that that should continue. Members should put the maximum amount of pressure on the United States, and it's totally illegal action that they're engaging in. Um, so I would argue that it's just a question of time before the politics boomerang backceptions administration on this. Um, there's going to be a lot of job losses, a lot of stories in the in the in the in the reports, the newspapers, and uh, I would hope that, that this would uh, start to uh, give the Republicans, uh, who actually may start to act like Republicans again, uh, to put pressure on the administration to to roll back uh, on these on these uh, tariffs. So what are, what are the other actions that um, could be done to counter this U.S. trade policy? Um, we heard in the earlier session, uh, you know, a suggestion that, that members could get together and use the dispute settlement system to challenge, uh, for example, uh, China's uh, state-owned uh, subsidization, state-owned enterprises. Um, to the extent that WTO members think that they have a case against China, there is a vehicle to challenge. Um, there are multiple uh, vehicles to challenge these uh, these actions, um, if the EU and Canada and Japan and other uh, like-minded countries believe that they have a case against China, they could use the dispute settlement system and show the United States very clearly uh, that the system is big enough to do this, that the disciplines do exist, and that WTO panels are capable 
of engaging in such activities. That will be, that'll send a very clear signal uh, to the U.S. who may even decide to be a third party uh, in that case. Uh, not suggesting in any way that there's any merit to it, but if countries believe that, the, that that's the way to go, they certainly can do that. And that would, that would send a very strong signal uh, that the system is capable of doing it. I would note that the, the Obama administration in the last week before they left office initiated an aluminum uh, challenge to, uh, to China uh, that was very comprehensive, uh, and it just sat there. The Trump administration ignored it, and when the two, Section 232 uh, complaints came out, we realized why. Uh, they, weren't, they weren't picking up on that, but uh, that was a very, very extensive uh, consultation request uh, filed by the United States on excess capacity in aluminum the U.S. claimed as a result of subsidies. Now, whether or not that's legitimate or not or valid would have to be decided by a WTO panel. Um, but clearly the system has the capability of doing that, so I would encourage members who believe they have cases to bring cases uh, and demonstrate that the system does work. Um, I'd also encourage members to continue to bring WTO disputes against U.S. illegal unilateral action. Don't let them sit there and get away with it. Um, if you think about the timing of these cases, if you were to bring a case now, in, in the end of 2018, it would, it would go through the panel process um, in about 18 months. Guess what happens in another 18 months? You've got a U.S. election coming up. You may have a new administration a new administration who may actually be willing to implement WTO losses. Uh, this could well give a new administration in the United States the ability and the political cover uh, to get rid of all these uh, illegal measures. Um, so think about that as well in terms of the timing of your own challenges to what the U.S. is doing. Um, I agree with everything the earlier panel said about bringing the United States to the negotiating table and the fact that this is a, a political process. It has to be resolved politically, and it has to, you have to resolve the key fundamental issues that are really driving U.S. concern, which is, I believe, U.S. Um, trade remedies uh, complaints, the, the complaints of the, of the interpretations of various U.S. trade remedy uh, uh, decisions. Um, I think that's really, that's the heart of the matter, as I would see it. Um, issues like zeroing, like public body. Um, like the interpretation of Article 17.62 uh, of the Anti-Dumping Agreement. Issues like that that, that give countries the flexibility um, to impose uh, trade remedies when they believe it's necessary. And finally, I think it's really important to pay attention to the reform um, of the appellate body. The United States has put forward various proposals. Members should treat that seriously. Uh, the United States has given them an opportunity to, to negotiate on those, sit down and negotiate. Uh, I think that's it. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> thank, you. thank you, Scott. So I noticed that the, the second half of the, this, uh, uh, the title of this event is A Search for Solutions. And we've done a pretty good job, I think, of sketching out what the problems are, and I think uh, you're all aware of the problems. I noticed that our solutions up here kind of range from weighted out uh, to, you know, use the dispute settlement mechanism to, to try to do, rein the United States in. I'm a little bit skeptical that that's going to matter all that much uh, in, in the near term. Um, so maybe we can talk also about solutions that can happen in the United States, what has to happen electorally, whether the midterm is, you know, it's just, it's, uh, we should just ignore that because of the, Jim's description of uh, 
the Democratic Party at this, at this point. Um, maybe we need to wait for the next president. I don't know, maybe we can talk a little more about that. Maybe you guys will have questions asking specifically for solutions to specific problems. But before we do that, let me ask uh, Greg Schaefer to join the panel from that seat over there and uh, respond to Simon's vicious attack on your thesis. <laughs> And social inclusion clearly is a mantra here in Geneva and the IMF, World Bank. Everybody's talking about social inclusion, but usually it stops with that phrase. And there's very little in terms of proposals, except what's well, a traditional two-step model, which is you leave it for the nation state. And of course, if the nation, what's been happening is not much. And so then there's a tension between ongoing push for trade liberalization, which is what most people are focused on probably here in this room, and the challenges of the, of the lack of social inclusion policies. And so the argument is the two are linked um, and we need to see them as linked. I agreed completely with what Scott just said at the very end, which is politically what's this all about in the United States is to have more space for its import relief policies, something that Cato traditionally has, you know, critiqued as well as most mainstream economists they were in this room and the way trade law is traditionally taught but there's a political realization that this organ this is a political safety valve and if we don't have it then um, it's going to be challenged going forward with maintaining uh, an independent appellate body and so forth so I think that's substantively right what I put forth in the paper with was a series of of uh, proposals of how to think about social inclusion policies, not as a two-step model where you just leave it for the nation state where maybe nothing is done and consequently you have lots of backlash, or you actually try to conceive of them within trade agreements themselves. And so one is just a modest social dumping policy, whereas you really do believe that there's certain uh, <clears throat> labor policies which are a violation of human rights, um, fundamental human rights, then think about this counterfactually uh, with respect to the dumping proposal, the dumping that now exists. I mean, this is abused all the time, and we know what it actually involves is just a series of accounting ploys where one side tries to maximize uh, differential value of normal value and export price, and the other side tries to minimize it. And that's, it's, just, it's, a, it's just a game for accountants. Whereas if you really did have a policy with respect to social dumping, with respect to defined labor rights violations, there will still be risk of abuse, and the paper tries to address how you could, uh, could uh, uh, address the challenges of abuse. Um, but it would, in terms of settlement, it wouldn't be your accountant versus my accountant and what basically price fixing what, or uh, basically creating a cartel, but rather would be the central issue of discussions would be the labor rights violations at stake. And I argue that would be a good thing. Um, and it would provide, I also argue in the paper that we should actually be, be honest that trade liberalization in the world of global supply chains does create leverage of capital vis-a-vis -vis labor. Capital, that's the reason why we see wage stagnation in the United States despite economic growth. Capital can simply threaten to go elsewhere if wage demands are too much. And so we can't think about these in terms of two separate policies, one about international trade liberalization, the second about domestic social policy. The two are interlinked, and so the paper tries to address 
in a modest way what could be done. Now, in terms of trying to challenge, trying to correct for abuses, because of course everything's going to abuse. I mean, they're going to be very, you know, interest-based parties. But it's fascinating. I'm, I've always been a, a fan of actually of Chapter 19 of uh, of NAFTA, where you could. The question is, who oversees uh, the the implementation of these social dumping policies so that it's not simply accounting employees or not simply a, a captured agency. You can imagine different international oversight mechanisms, Chapter 19 just being one of them. But my challenge would be, it's not that I necessarily have the solution and the paper thinks this is the solution, but rather let's all engage in this type of thinking about uh, social inclusion is a real challenge. It's not going to go away. It's going to get worse um, in an gl economically globalized world of large companies that have leverage over workers. And so how do we think about this going forward? Thank, thank you, Greg. J Jim has a question. Okay. Go, Jim. Uh, Greg, a question. Can you give us a concrete example of what you would propose as a specific social dumping measure so that I can understand what exactly it is you're proposing? Yeah, so there's a list in the TPP that's now been taken into NAFTA. Um, and with the way it's been set up in terms of dispute settlement is that you can challenge the other side with respect to the labor rights violation. And then after dispute settlement, you can do something. And so the argument is use the same standard for labor rights violations, which is a list of core labor rights violations. And that's subject to negotiation, but put those forward. Um, and then you have an internal policy where if you have a, if you meet those standards in a domestic policy, in a domestic process, you can then raise duties. Um, and that would be subject to appeal with some sort of international oversight as to how it's applied, such as Chapter 19. So you're um, suggesting uh, trade restrictions in the form of duties based on labor violations after there has been a, a determination yes. and dispute settlement that there have been yes. labor violations. Yes. And, and taking the TPP agreed list as a starting point. And given the size, the number of countries that agreed to the TPP, it seems... The core labor standards uh, yes. of the ILO. Yeah. Well, it's more than that in the TPP. But, um, but there were certain basic agreements that those 11 countries agreed to. Um, and, and that would be the starting point. And does, does there have to be harm? Um, Beyond there, just a violation, so does there is, have to be a demonstration of injury or harm? Like, you, like so there, the, what the proposal is, and this is, of course, where the Guatemala case, um, yeah. it has to be uh, systemic. So you'd have to show a series of labor rights violations. So it would just be one. But then... It, <clears throat> The, the, the causation standard is something which, when, I, when you talk to people who've worked in the ITC, it's very difficult to prove given the multifactual factorial uh, analysis of what could cause harm. So, yeah, in the paper, it suggests a correlation, like in a safeguard, where you show increased imports, you show domestic injury, and you show labor rights violations. But the causation, you only need to show correlation, which is, I think in many ways is often what is done in practice. But in, and safeguards, there's no actual 
allegation of an unfair trade practice, whereas here you will be defining a violation of labor rights as an unfair trade practice. Is Ex that correct? Exactly. And the argument would be it creates a discussion over labor rights and empowers labor both domestically but also in the foreign country. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, everybody. Well, um, let me open up the floor to questions. Um, and uh, or if anybody wants to respond to Greg, that's in play as well. Jennifer. Start just with first with just a couple of, of, of comments or at least additions. Um, and again, I my, my I guess maybe I'm throwing out a question to everybody else in terms of how should the WTO think about it? Because two little additions I'll add on to what's going on on the 232 side. Because um, one really strikes me as the total lack of transparency around the issue of the exclusions process. And again, this is this idea that um, uh, that a, a given company can apply to get their particular steel or aluminum product excluded from the tariffs. Um, and actually the number, I th as I understand it, that there's now 34,000 of these petitions pending in front of the Commerce Department. Um, only about four or 5,000 of them have been acted on. Um, those that have been granted are only the ones in which the United States Steel Corporation or Nucor Steel did not object. 100% of the objections raised by two U.S. companies um, have been, have been um, adhered to, meaning those products have not been excluded. Um, I'm told, for example, that one country was told that their company's um, exclusions would be granted if they would agree to move their um, embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. Uh, so there's a clear sort of push by the, the U.S. government to, to link this to sort of other policies that they want. Um, so I'm just, I'm just sort of saying there is this huge lack of transparency around this process that I, it's not clear to me that others shouldn't be at some level alarmed or worried or figure out some way is there any other engagement to have in it. Second comment is the three countries that did not um, live with the tariffs got quotas. And just to put, the, put it out there, uh, Brazil, Argentina, and South Korea agreed in lieu of the tariffs to agree to quotas. Um, and just to give you a sense of what happened, um, so the quota on, um, on Korea was said that they would get a, a quota equal to 70% um, of their average trade over the previous three years, 2.68 million tons of steel. But what happened when the United States finally got around to figuring out how they were going to apply that quota um, is that they literally put out the announcement at 8.59 p.m. for quotas that went into effect at one minute after midnight, and they took that 2.68 million tons and divided it up into 54 separate limits and then added a quarterly limit on top of it um, with no flexibility whatsoever, no ability to move quota from one time period to another or from one category to another. So, for example, one of the categories just for those of you that think about the weight of something, 15 kilograms. That's the maximum amount you can ship in a quarter of a steel product. I mean, you know, half of what you can carry in your suitcase um, is the max quota, which effectively means a lot of the quotas are simply unusable by anyone uh, because the, the volumes are so small by the way they divided, 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 divided up. Did the same thing for Brazil and the same thing for Argentina. So uh, again, just huge abuse, if you will, of the power of the United States to, to do this and do this at the last second. So I, again, I I don't know what the answer is, but I'm curious whether, 
you know, there ought to be sort of more engagement around the way in which, I mean, for starters, obviously, this is totally illegal what the U.S. is doing. But even in the interstices of the way in which it's being implemented, there's all these other further issues that get raised that I'm, I'm just, you know, again, I'm, I'm trying to figure out whether there's a way to bring greater transparency to it. But my question is on, on the legal side to Scott, because you've been sort of saying, you know, good on you, everybody go and challenge these measures. And my only question to you is, are you worried at all about what is going to come when the ruling comes under Article 21? Because clearly the United States is going to say at least the steel and the aluminum tariffs um, are national security tariffs. Um, it's going to drag us right into Article 21. Um, as you know, obviously this is pending in front of, the, in front of a panel in the Russia-Ukraine dispute. Um, the U.S. has joined Russia and no one else um, in arguing that Article 21 is totally non-justiciable, that the moment um, one argues Article 21 that the panel has to stop, go home, put your pens down, don't rule on anything. There's obviously then a series of other views about how you should interpret 21. But the concern I would have is if the panel in the 232 case sides with the United States, sure, you can go ahead and everything is subject to national security. Everybody else's products of everything else can be subject to the same claim. And if, on the other hand, the panel says absolutely not United States, it's not fissionable material, it's not trafficking in arms, it's not taken in a time of war or other international emergency, no, um, the U.S. pulls out of the WTO or threatens to pull out of the WTO or effectively pulls out of the WTO. I mean, how, how much risk are we that this is another one of the take down the system uh, risks? Um, one of the ways you can you can reduce that risk is to bring an Article 23 claim. Um, on so Mexico, as I understand it, of all of the parties that have challenged 232, the only country that has added a non-violation claim is Mexico. Right. I'm wondering why someone doesn't bring only a non-violation claim that would then not be subject to the Article 21. Qatar has brought a oh, non-violation claim against the UAE. An, against the UAE. Yeah. I'm saying against the 232 sure. tariffs. Right, I know. So, um, yeah, I think that's a real. It, we have to see how the how the, the jurisprudence is playing out. The interim decision in the Ukraine case is out. Uh, it's not out. I mean, it's it's uh, it's under wraps. So we don't know uh, how far the panel has gone. I'm sure that my my suspicion is that the uh, the panel is going to find that that indeed the panel has the jurisdiction to. Uh, determine what the scope of Article 21 is, but then after that, it's a black box. I, I, I don't know where, where the panel is going to go, how much flexibility this is going to be. That's a completely open question, uh, and we'll see what happens. Um, if, the, um, if, the, if the United States is given that kind of flexibility, well, then there are other avenues to challenge them uh, if they assert national security, i.e., non-violation. Can I add something now? Yes. I, I certainly see why you would ask the question, you know, does this, um, you know, trigger the U.S. to, you know, to pull out of the system? They're so offended by the, this case brought against them that they lost. But look, why, they could just ignore it. I mean, they could just ignore the decision. Um, so I, I worried about that at first, too. But I thought, why, why do they care if there's a ruling against them on this? They, I mean, people are going to, at this point, they're imposing tariffs and people are retaliating. Nobody's pulling out of the system. They're just fundamentally undermining it. But hopefully we can get it back. So... So I, I, I was concerned at one point about that, but then I thought, eh, it does, it's not going to matter. They're not going to care. Lighthizer's not going to be so offended by this that he says, well, that's it. That's the last straw. He's just say, well, we didn't like the WTO anyway. I think the greater 
danger to the trading system is if uh, the U.S. view is upheld rather than if it is not. Uh, if the U.S. view is upheld, then anything goes. The U.S. view is simply that um, the WTO has no jurisdiction uh, to question any WTO member on any issue that that member identifies as being uh, related to a national security measure. This, of course, begs the question of why Article 21 exists. Um, but if the U.S. wins, then every other member of the WTO can employ the same excuse. Um, I think Simon is probably right. If the U.S. loses, then the U.S. is most likely to denounce the ruling and then ignore it. I have a bit of a caveat here. Trump's trade policy is being played out within the uh, context of what is happening to Trump personally as president. Um, he is increasingly encircled legally. I think he will be even more uh, by the time the WTO issues any ruling against the United States, probably a lot more. And I think that the more he feels that um, they're closing in on him, then the more extreme his unilateral actions of all kinds uh, may be. Um, I, this is when I fear he may suddenly decide in a Twitter storm to take the United States out of the WTO. Of course, I agree with you in what you said earlier today that legally he cannot do so. But I don't think our president is much concerned about the law. So that would be my caveat to Simon's statement. Does anybody want to speak about whether there are any domestic avenues, channels to address this, what we're talking about, bringing a case of the WTO on the exclusions process mitigates the problem and maybe establishes some precedence, but like, like the sense of some of the panelists here, the U.S. isn't really going to care much. Uh, is there something that we can do to, to address the problem? Do we, can, Scott, you spoke of the, all these Im adverse impacts on steel and aluminum users, on farmers who are getting hit with retaliation. As far as I can tell, there hasn't been a real outcry yet from them, and, and we need an, elect an electoral process for that to happen. When will the politics in, in Congress reflect the poll numbers that, that Jennifer cited earlier? I don't know. I'm going to maintain my subscriptions to, to New York Times and Washington Post and Wall Street Journal and uh, hope that they keep reporting and uh, have, have enough subscribers that they can they can be transparent and smoke this kind of illegality and dirty politics out because I mean it's astonishing. Uh, 
I have thoughts. I don't know how helpful they are. So, I mean, two things. One is we keep saying and we believe that these, these tariffs, you know, really have an, are going to have an impact and, and do bad things to the economy. And we see re, re, media reports of that now. Um, it should only intensify. And over time, as it builds up, you know, ho hopefully it will start to have an impact and maybe we'll see it at, at the polls in a month. But the other thing going on is that for reasons that I certainly can't explain and other people can try if they want, the U.S. economy is booming generally. And, you know, maybe it's because um, we're running a you know, trillion dollar budget deficit. We're spending all kinds of money. Uh, that should give it a short term boost. Well, that can't last forever. Um, you know, economies, you know, they go like this and we're like this and we've got to be coming down. When the, the overall economy starts to take a downturn, then I can see there being a change in attitudes uh, among the voters and among politicians, people more willing to, to push back. And so, you know, I don't think anybody really can predict, um, you know, ec you know, economic uh, growth uh, very well. But at some point, a downturn is coming, and that might shake, shake things up completely. And that is the opportunity to point out to President Trump that your policies aren't working very well. So right now he sees, so I impose these tariffs and we're having great growth and, you know, job, you know, unemployment's low. What do you, what, you know, what could possibly be wrong with this? We're winning. So we need a downturn, I think, to, to show him that this doesn't work. And, but I, but then again, I obviously, there's a downside to that. I'm not looking forward to it. I'm not rooting for it, but that, that may, that may be the only way. Um, so. One thing that comes to mind, especially with Jennifer's comments, of this lack of transparency in the process, uh, I think a lot can be done domestically in the United States through Congress. Now, I know, sorry to say this, Jim, but we don't trust Congress right now that much, but you're not there, so maybe that's part of it. Uh, <laughs> but the thing is that trade... I'm no longer to blame. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Uh, but, but trade is in the hands of Congress. It's in our Constitution. Uh, and to the extent that if we do have a sea change, I know the Democrats may not support free trade, but they, what they will support is taking power away from President Trump. Uh, and I think that this is a great opportunity for the Democrats to seize upon it if they do take over the House, is to basically scale back uh, what the president can do unilaterally, uh, as he has done over the last year and a half. Uh, so I think that's what we really need to push for in the United States effectively, uh, is to take away some of the powers of the president uh, to do what he wants uh, as he sees fit when the political sea change happens. Uh, so I think that's something everyone should push for in a very big way, uh, is to really enforce the Constitution for once. Yeah. Well, I just add to that that I'm not very optimistic that will happen because most of the members of the Congress are actually running for president and they won't want to diminish the power of the presidency before they get there. Um, Hi, uh, Tom Miles from Reuters. Um, uh, thanks very much. It's another stimulating discussion, but right at the end of a long week, so I'm sort of perhaps struggling to keep up. I just wondered uh, whether you think the China market economy might be a bigger threat to the U.S. continuation in the, in the WTO, given that you know they've, they've set this kind of red line demand that China shifts the whole basis of its uh, economic policy. And if the WTO were to come down on, on China's side in this, would, would that, I mean, what would be the consequences? The second thing I wanted to ask is, in this kind of crazy revolving door shaking up uh, White House, um, it seems like the Lighthizer, Ross, Navarro uh, sort of axis is, is pretty solid. I mean, Gary Cohn went, but uh, do you see any chance of any change in that in the next few years? Or do you think, uh, or however long it takes, um, uh, do you think the Trump White House is, is going to be continued to, to follow this um, uh, 
the, the sort of Lighthizer line. Thanks. As to your first question, I believe much of the political intimidation uh, the United States has imposed on the appellate body is specifically addressed at trying to um, coerce a certain decision out of the appellate body on the market economy status case involving China. As to your second question, I don't see much likelihood at all that the Trump administration is going to move um, away from its mercantilism and protectionism and back toward freer trade policy for the United States. Um, I don't know the depth of anything the president believes, but all evidence is that uh, if he truly believes in any one public policy, it is protectionism. And uh, he has shorn himself of all advisors who might advise him. Otherwise, uh, he's left with a very capable trade lawyer in Bob Lighthizer who believes in protectionism and can help him implement protectionism. And I'm think we're stuck with that approach until we elect another president. Yeah, so just quickly, I think I'm quoting this accurately, but you could you could look it up. So I'm pretty sure that Lighthizer has said publicly that if the uh, U.S. It, well, in this case against the EU on non-market economy, if the U.S. loses that issue, uh, it would be cataclysmic. And I, you know, I think the message he was sending uh, was clear there. And yeah, just to agree with Jim, I mean, I, on the possible change, um, I mean, I, I think I heard it suggested. Dan, you and I heard it suggested a year ago or so. Somebody said, "Oh, Lighthizer is just going to stay for a year," and I was a little surprised to to hear that because I mean, to me, this is just his dream job. You know, this is, he's been waiting years to have this opportunity, and he looks to me like he has a lot of energy, and I, you know, I, I don't, I don't think this changes, I don't see any sign that this will change anytime soon and, until there's a different president. That may just amplify the, de the depressing conclusion here. I, I think Peter Navarro, I mean, the, the author of a book called Death by China is advising the U.S. policy on trade in China. Uh, that's, the U.S. priority, in my opinion, is not uh, allowing the uh, rules to change so that we can zero. It's not about making sure that the WTO works. It's about prosecuting a trade war against China. And I think that's their priority. I think that they, they're going to add more. The rest of, the, of our imports from China are going to be subject to tariffs. The, I think the objective is to repatriate those supply chains, to discourage American companies from staying there, to come back. Of course, we have to violate many of our commitments to get there. I just don't think that that is anywhere near a priority. They're, they're singular-minded on this, uh, about going after China, and um, we've only seen the beginning of it. Uh, so to the extent that we can rein in some of these unilateral tools, um, we should be trying to do that. We should be uh, alerting people that this is, this is coming down the pike. There's a view, I mean, it's been in the, in the American public for a long time that China's nipping at our heels, and they're the big challenger, and we need to do something. And, you know, we've always pushed back on that narrative. But if you go to Congress, there aren't too many policymakers who aren't on the hawk, hawk end of the, of the spectrum now. The past 10 years, they've been gravitating that way. Trump didn't uh, invent this, this policy. 
Uh, he's giving it much more of a push. But uh, I think it's going to take a while. I think there are a lot of people thinking, yeah, we have to do something. WTO is too slow. Our hands are tied there. Um, and so this is what we're going to do. And let's, we need to wake up to that reality. Yeah. Sorry. I, I, could I also just ask something about Article 21? Because I didn't, didn't quite understand what you were saying, what you are suggesting. But clearly the, the signal of which way the wind is blowing is going to come out of the Russia-Ukraine case. I mean, do you expect um, the U.S. to act on the basis of that case and to, you know, say we can't take this? Or, or will that then kind of trigger a phony war ahead of a, uh, of a ruling on a, on a U.S. Um, uh, dispute? Am I making that clear? I'm not sure. But, I mean, we, we get the first readout on Article 21, I think, early in 2019, right? I mean, uh, so obviously it depends what the report says. Um, but I would say, look, it, it's subject to appeal. If, if it goes, if the reasoning is not to the U.S. liking, they will certainly denounce it. They will criticize it. But then it will be subject to appeal and it will just stay in limbo for a while. So I don't think that's, the, that's what's going to bring the system down. I think it would be a ruling against the United States on 232. That's where, you know, they, they, they'd really be upset. But, yes, they, they will publicly criticize this ruling if they don't like the reasoning, but then it'll just go off into appellate body limbo and we won't have to think about it for a while, I, I think. Somebody, if somebody else has a different opinion, I'd like to hear it. Yeah, I, I agree with, with Simon. Uh, there's also this, as everyone else up here would agree, um, each WTO dispute is specific to the facts relating to the measure that's at issue in the dispute. And what's at issue in the Russia-Ukraine dispute will differ factually from what's at issue uh, in these U.S. disputes involving steel and aluminum tariffs. And depending on the differences in those facts and uh, how they match up to the obligation uh, that, are, uh, that are violated and the uh, claim defense under Article 21, you could get different outcomes. Thank you. Uh, I'm Henning Enval from the uh, Swedish mission. Um, could I uh, pick up on your uh, competition with China point, uh, Mr. Atkinson, and ask you um, about the U.S. view on China? Because I read the thick... Uh, U.S. paper that they presented in the summer in the WTO, which was meant to explain why China is such a big problem. And I'm not at all, I, I mean, I'm a humble civil servant, I'm not at all an expert on China, but I can read a report and, and see and critically and, and, and look at the facts. And to me, it wasn't honestly very convincing. Um, it had it was, um, it sort of gave the impression of somebody that is afraid of a threat. Uh, and I, I, I just don't understand why your great country should be afraid of, of, of China, really. It had examples of like... I, I don't think we do either. I, okay. I'll let others disagree <laughs> with me, but I certainly don't. 
uh, it had examples like, uh, well, Chinese companies have, have um, politically communist party members in their board. And I'm trying to think, well, well, if they have poor corporate governance, maybe that's a bigger problem from Ch for China than for us. And it also had a lot of numbers, but it was very weak on comparisons that said, well, the Chinese are actually worse than other people in, in the subsidies. It, large numbers on their military spending, for example, but compared to what? And in compared to how many people live there and so on? Uh, so, um, yeah, that, I've just put that out to you, there, you, this great panel of experts from US uh, trade policy to see what you think. I, I would say that is a sentiment, concern about China, more of a hawkish view of China has existed for a long time. It's just been animated more lately, and I, I, I attribute that to sort of a breakdown of the, the safeguards that kept the U.S.-China relationship on track. I mean, you, you have a import competing industries and labor unions over the years saying, you know, don't let China in, hit them with tariffs, hit them with anti-dumping duties. You've had the multinational community saying, don't act that way toward China. There's a, there's a pot of gold on the other side of the rainbow. There's a very big market there. And U.S. policy has always kind of split the difference. And we had access to anti-dumping and, yeah, and, and, and then WTO measures uh, eventually. Um, but the, the multinational community, has uh, its su support for the relationship has diminished considerably over the years. And I think they're coming this way. Then you add the element of national security, cybersecurity, uh, the, the concern about being leapfrogged via industrial policy to the technological fore has sh shifted the, the d debate down here. So there's now greater scope to accept flimsy arguments like that, that report. Uh, and I just don't see anybody, there's, there's, there's no cost, there's no benefit to coming out and saying, no, we don't need to tighten our CFIUS rules or we don't need to tighten our export control rules. Uh, there was a few years ago, but I, th I think that's gone. And uh, don't know how it's going to play out. So I'm, I'm not echoing that opinion. I'm just telling you what it is. It's 4.17. Does anybody else have anything to say or ask or proclaim? Or any toasts? <laughs> <laughs> any confessions? Well, we are going to move into that room shortly to uh, enjoy some cocktails and snacks, I guess. Upstairs. Oh, it's upstairs. I'm sorry. Um, I want, I'd like to thank um, the Graduate Institute for, for hosting us, um, in particular, Angelica Zeninelli, who organized all of this and put this all together uh, with the assistance of some people from Cato, but this has been a great venue. Really pleased about it. This panel, this, we, this, we've done this twice now. We did this once at the forum. We're doing <laughs> it here. Tomorrow. It changed a little bit. Uh, anyway, so we'll get the band back together sometime. Um, thank you all for coming. I hope as many of you can stay as possible to uh, have a drink with us, and uh, best of luck to all of us.